Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Thanks so much, Ryan. I'm uh, really excited um, about today. Um, I know uh, we started the series last week with Ryan and, and Nora and talking about race. And um, we'll talk about it today and as well as next week. Um, and I know this topic is something that uh, many people, especially churches, don't like to talk about. And there's actually a term for it. It's called racial anxiety. It's when people of color are concerned that they won't be heard and that because of this topic, they'll experience further racial discrimination. And then um, racial anxiety looks like um, in the white community where there's a lot of fears that um, white people will be labeled as racist. And so I know um, it's, for me, it's just good to know that there's actually a term for it, um, racial anxiety, because it helps me realize that what we feel isn't unique to us um, and that we aren't alone in our fears and that this problem isn't even like unique to LBCF, but it's something that is happening practically across every church in America, just the need to talk about race and just, um, you know, things related to that, especially around uh, the church community. And so what I want to say from the beginning is that we aren't going to approach this topic um, like we would on social media. <laughs> We're not going to have like a Facebook or Twitter war. And this conversation is going to be different from the public square because there's um, a different dynamic present here. Um, you know, the public square assumes that there isn't really um, much of a relationship there. We're also not going to talk about this as Democrats or Republicans or independents or progressives or conservatives, because um, in this conversation, we're going to talk about this as Long Beach Christian Fellowship. We're going to talk about this as a family matter, because the assumption is that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and that makes a difference in the way we talk about things. We see each other as family, and seeing each other as family um, you know, we therefore extend grace. And we know that this, because of family, this is going to be a long extended conversation that didn't just begin today or last week, but it began a while back and it'll continue way beyond next week. And so I know that as a family, we don't always talk about things well. We don't communicate well. Oftentimes we fail to listen. We've had a lot of missteps as a church. But we hope to do better, and this series is really our attempt to try to do better. And even then, I know that we'll stumble along the way. And so I pray that you would uh, just join us in this um, conversation so that we, as the people of faith, would just allow Scripture to speak to us, that we would, as Mary said, listen to the still small voice of God and pay attention because God is speaking. And so if I can just say a little prayer uh, just before I, I get into the rest of what I have to say, um, I just feel a need to pray right now. God in heaven, we thank you for um, just this time to talk about um, a topic that is pressing not only in society at large, but um, in our church and the members of our community. We ask God that you would speak to us um, in a manner that we would be able to pay attention to and receive in humility. 
that God, we would um, just have a posture of, of um, listening and that God, because of that, you would lead us um, towards understanding what it means to love. And so God, by your spirit, be present now in Christ's name. Amen. Now, recently, I re-watched the romantic comedy Notting Hill. If you don't know me, um, my, um, one of my favorite genres is romantic comedies. And it's a movie that came out about 20 years ago starring uh, Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. And Julia Roberts plays this um, ultra-famous uh, movie star named Anna Scott. And she meets and falls in love with this ordinary, regular bookstone owner named William Thacker, who's played by Hugh Grant. And as their um, romance begins to develop, they fall in love. And, you know, he begins to realize, um, William Thacker, that, you know, he's fallen in love with this person that lives in a totally different world. She's the super megastar, you know, the limelights, the fame, and he's just this regular, boring, unknown, small, you know, bookshop owner. And so as he thinks about his relationship, even though he like loves her deeply, he can't imagine how they can coexist, how can they can how they can sustain this relationship. And so he basically decides to break it off, even though like he deeply loves her. And so in one of the final scenes, you know, they're like um, Julia Roberts' character comes into the bookshop and and you know is basically trying to like say like I, I want this to work. Um, but then he says, um, I live in Notting Hill and you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone knows who you are. And my mother has trouble even remembering my name. And so Anna Scott is like confused and devastated, you know. And, and so as before she walks out the door, she looks back at him and she says, you know what? The fame thing isn't really real. And don't forget. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And I remember when she said that, I remember just being moved by it because I felt like this is really what it sums up what it means to be human. Just this like intrinsic desire to be loved, to be known by who we are outside of all the other stuff, right? Um, but I know oftentimes it gets messy because we, we see all the other things that can detract. We see the messiness of relationships. And because of the messiness of relationships, you know, pain becomes really real and raw and, and difficult to work through. And I know that as even as we speak about race as a church, you know, there's a lot of like things um, like moving um, into the conversation that makes this conversation even messier. You know, we have other conversations we have with relatives, with other people, with, with you know, our, our watching the news and we're, we're just feeling overwhelmed and feel so much more uncomfortable about this. But really our goal as, you know, um, uh, as the character Anna Scott, you know, was, was trying to share is that really... All I'm asking is that you see who I am and you love me for who you are. And at the core of this conversation is really that. It's people saying, this is who I am. Will you like pay attention and just like see me, at, 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 see, 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 see all of me. This is who I am. And I'm, I'm asking you to participate in this discussion because I want you to know me. 
in the season of Lent, as we practice our disciplines, you know, our spiritual disciplines, as we enter into this again and again season of like trying to discipline ourselves towards godliness, as 1 Timothy 4 says. You know, I think about the spiritual disciplines and sometimes we can get stuck in like trying to like fast for fasting's sake or trying to do certain like spiritual disciplines for discipline, you know, spiritual discipline's sake. But really what Jesus says is that, you know what, the first and greatest commandment, you know, is, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus is essentially saying that all that you do, whether any prescriptive or descriptive parts of scripture that, that is like leading us towards something, they all hang on these two things, love God and love your neighbor. And so as we practice our spiritual disciplines, I think, you know, if our disciplines aren't allowing us to, or leading us to become more loving, then I'm not sure if we're actually practicing our, our spiritual disciplines in a healthy way. And as I think about the scripture passage today, it's found in Matthew 9, you know, Jesus went around the towns and villages teaching and proclaiming the good news. And it says that Jesus, you know, had compassion as he saw the crowds because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I used to think of this passage, you know, back in the day as like this mandate to do evangelism, you know, because the harvest is plentiful, Jesus says, but the workers are few. And, you know, Jesus basically says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into his harvest field. But as Jesus was assessing the harvest field and paying attention, it wasn't about evangelism, you know, and, and lostness in that sense that Jesus was trying to highlight. But as Jesus saw the crowds, it says here that he had compassion. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. That Jesus was able to see that there are people in the world, in our communities, that are feeling helpless. They're feeling isolated and alone where, you know, just, just there are systems that aren't working for them. And in Psalm 1017, you know, the psalmist says, you hear, O Lord, the desires of the afflicted, you encourage them and you listen to their cry. And so we have a God that is like paying attention and, and listening in. And there's something about that passage that, that is telling me that if we want to really hear God's voice, then we have to be like God in the way he listens to the cries of the afflicted. And that's a spiritual discipline. That's a practice that I hope that our church, you know, through this um, conversation on race can enter into. I remember being at a conference and the speaker was Christina Cleveland. She's the author of an amazing book called Disunity. She's a theologian and just a brilliant person. And, and she posed the question to the audience. And, and she said, can we hear and see truth even when it's messy? Because Christians love truth presented in sanitized ways through theological arguments, but truth is holy. Can we receive it even when it is messy? You know, I, I was like, wow, that's, that's so powerful. You know, can we receive truth even when it makes us feel uncomfortable? And so to illustrate, she brought up the story of Rosa Parks, and many of you know the story. 
of this brave black woman in Montgomery, Alabama, back in December of 1995, who became um, a symbol of the civil rights movement because of her defiance and not giving up her seat on the bus. But the interesting thing that, that Christina Cleveland said in the story is that she wasn't the first black person to refuse to give up her seat. In fact, 13 years before, there was a person by the name of Bayard Rustin that did the same thing. And even before, um, uh, or a little bit after that, Irene Morgan did the same thing. And another person, Sarah Lewis Keys, in 1952, also refused to give up their seat on the bus. And so there was like this history of people that were trying to defy these, these evil rules that were like implemented in society. But the interesting thing was that there was another young woman by the name of Claudette Calvin who only nine months before Rosa Parks actually did the same thing. You know, she was on a bus and the bus driver told her to give up her seat, but she refused and she was, was soon arrested. And so here's this young lady in the same city in the same bus system as Rosa Parks, but she was largely forgotten. And so the question was asked, why wasn't she the face of the civil rights movement? And there were a lot of reasons as the NAACP was trying to find like a, a person that would symbolize the civil rights movement. You know, they had to ask themselves hard questions. You know, they, they, they were trying to find a person that would be more presentable in society. And it was like a hard like thing that they had to think through. They thought about Claudette Calvin and she was a minor, you know, and so um, Rosa Parks was seen as more trustworthy. Parks also had lighter skin. Um, Claudette Calvin was also poor, and Parks was more middle class and therefore more socially acceptable. And then they also realized that um, Claudette Calvin became pregnant just a few months before, and they knew that you know she couldn't be the face of the movement because an unwed teenage mother who was dark-skinned probably wouldn't be received by society. And so Christina Cleveland was trying to pose like these two people, right? Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin, who did the same thing. And yet one person is remembered in history, but Claudette Colvin, who was just as brave, was largely forgotten. Why? Because um, it was hard for people to receive truth that came in the person of Claudette Colvin, even though they experienced the same injustice. And so in reference to the story, you know, um, Christina Cleveland remarks how Black people who bring up issues are oftentimes, you know, negatively labeled. And people will say, you're just another angry person. You're being, um, you're not being thankful, you're lazy. And then she says, this is what powerful people say to force people to respect us. If you talk to us, we insist that you do so in a non-angry way. This is what power does. It is forces the underprivileged to be respectful, respectable or we won't listen. So angry black men, their truth is not valuable. If you want us to listen, you have to come in the package of a Rosa Parks. And so you think about that story and you realize that this is like, you know, something that was missed. 
that God was actually trying to speak to society as he heard the cries of Claudette Colvin. She cried out to God and she was asking God to help her. And I believe God was asking everyone to pay attention to her cries. But for some reason, she was forgotten and people didn't pay attention. And I, I think about that story because I wonder about all the different times that God is trying to present like a, a place for me to actually like pay attention to God. Is, is God here? And a lot of times I'll like, like look around and try to like practice my spiritual discipline and trying to sense the presence of God. And I'm trying to look for, like Mary said, like the great earthquake or, or the howling wind or, or the great fire. And miss all along that God was trying to speak through the voice of a teenage pregnant black girl. And yet we miss it. You know, one of my kids confronted me recently about something I had done. Um, and I remember um, not receiving it well. And I'm embarrassed to admit that what went through my mind wasn't very healthy. I'm really ashamed of it. You know, I went into all the different modes. I went into the self-pity mode and thinking to myself, am I really that bad of a father? I went into self-defense mode and started in my mind thinking, look at all the things I've done for you. Doesn't that count for anything? I'm like trying my best here to be a good dad. And, you know, I was processing all of this frustration, right? Because I was confronted with something and it made me feel like I was a failure. It made me feel unimportant. It made me feel like nothing I did ever mattered. And thankfully, um, as I was like reflecting on some of like my own personal issues, right? Um, I was able to identify what was going on into my heart um, and like bring myself back and center myself in the presence of God where I was able not to respond verbally to what was going on inside me and react with my immediate emotion um, because I began to realize that that's not what my child was saying at all. My child wasn't saying that I was a bad father. My child was confronting me with something because my child was trying to tell me, Dad, our relationship is important to me, and this is why I'm telling you this. And what you did that day made me feel uncared for. And it helped me, like, you know, get beyond my own insecurities, and it made me, like, approach my child and listen deeper into their pain. And as I was able to understand, I was able to confess and feel sadness and apologize and embrace. And it was such a, a, a beautiful time where I was able to thank my child. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for opening up your heart and helping me to understand who you are. And I think that's why, you know, this race issue is very important because as, as people of color in our church and other churches begin to like share their, 
their frustrations and feeling like their voices don't matter or feeling like their experiences you know, aren't being represented at the table. You know, people of color are really just trying to say, what, what, you know, people of color aren't like trying to point fingers and saying everybody's a bad person and we hate you. But really, this is an invitation to love. This is an invitation to say, I am in pain and I know I'm still here because this relationship matters. And will you listen to me? And I know sometimes my pain is going to come out in messy ways. And, and I get that. But as the church, can we, can we hear truth even when it's messy? And as the father and the relationship with my kids, you know, I hold authority. I hold the power. It's easy for me to put up a defensive posture, you know, non-listening and feel like I'm personally be atta being attacked and say, well, look at, you know, you're not seeing all the good that we've done. Um, but that's not what this is about. Um, and so for our church, especially for those of us like myself who hold leadership positions of the church, this is our time to listen well. This is our time to pay attention to the voices and, and for whenever we, we feel all of a sudden like vulnerable and feel like uncomfortable, to pray that God gives us the ability to move past our own insecurities about our self-worth and move away from trying to defend ourselves because I know God is trying to speak to us as a church. And God is going to do powerful things if we would just pay attention. And about 20 years ago, I did some postgraduate studies in North Carolina, and I was, you know, doing it from LA. And the way the school was set up, you know, for two years, I was supposed to fly to North Carolina every three to four months and spend a week at a time with a, a batch of students there. There were about 20, 25 of us. And I happened to be the only Asian person that was there. You know, here I was uh, coming from, you know, um, the Los Angeles area and just going to the East Coast, excited to learn new things with this group of friends and new friends that I found. And I remember the first night, you know, we went out for dinner and, you know, I was trying to get to know everybody. And, and as I was sitting around the table, there was maybe about 10 of us at this particular table, you know, the conversation turned towards a certain musician. And for some reason, everybody knew about that musical artist except me. And so they started talking about their favorite songs, their favorite albums, the different concerts that they had attended. And so this went on for a good two hours and you could just sense the excitement of newfound friends, like having a passion for the same thing. And here I was, like, you know, not having no idea who this artist was and trying to be polite and listen in and say, wow, oh, that's so cool and things like that. And I think I was able to tolerate it for that night. But the funny thing was that that dinner wasn't, that experience over that dinner wasn't unique to that one night. And after other meals, um, I remember speaking to my wife, I believe the third night I called her by phone and she was asking me how I was feeling. 
And I paused and I said, I want to come home. I feel alone. I feel like people don't know me and they don't care. And the interesting thing about this is that there wasn't anyone there that was intentionally being mean, right? There was no one like saying, you know, or just going to like pretend Danny doesn't exist. But the way social interactions is, is that the majority interest will usually dominate the conversation. It's unintentional, but the nature of human interaction is to talk about things that interest us and to revolve ourselves around things that are familiar. And when that happens repeatedly, oftentimes the voices and stories and experiences and contributions of minority people in the community is overlooked time and time again, and that becomes so painful. And I know that's why a lot of people have a hard time staying in churches in this in this issue right around race because there's oftentimes this dominant culture that again isn't intentional but because of just the way we interact socially it, it happens and so how do we as a church not make these kind of mistakes it comes from us being willing to step step aside for a second and like preference voices that we don't usually pay attention to as, as much. It means for us that we're willing to walk with people who are suffering. And when someone begins maybe to, to say something that we receive as complaint, to not just dismiss it, but to say, you matter. And I believe that God in the voices of people who are experiencing pain is trying to speak. And how do we enter into to this as a community? How do we collectively, as brothers and sisters in Christ, recognize that there are people within our church that are feeling just isolated and alone? And when we are able to do this as a community, we begin to see this not as this like horrible thing that we have to talk about, but really it is God's beautiful invitation to say, look at the beauty that is all around you. Every single person matters and their experiences are real and raw and so difficult. Will you just, will you just pause for a second and hear the cries of people that I care about deeply and give space to that. And so whatever anxiety you feel around this topic, um, I get it. Um, it's hard for me to talk about things with my kids because it like strikes me, you know, at the core of my like, like who I am and just like wanting to like be a good dad or a good pastor or a good person. But it isn't about that. Um, it's about us learning to love one another well.
And I know that as we pay attention to people, we will soon discover that our own liberation is bound up in the lives of other people. That this is not us trying to be a savior for people, but it is us trying to discover what it means to be human, to love another person, because in them we see the face of God. Thanks. And as we um, continue on in our service, I'd like to hand it over to Sam as she leads us in communion.